Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone and welcome along to the show. Today we're going to be speaking with Miranda Satterthwaite, who's the STEM coordinator at the ARA Institute of Canterbury. And we're going to talk a lot about the colonization of Mars. Here's an excerpt to give you a flavor of our conversation. One of the plans is to get a, an orbiting station around the moon and then slingshot from the moon out around to Mars. And depending on how well that first deployment goes, uh, we, we'll be able to increase the volume of traffic that happens between Earth and Mars. There's going to be, have to be a lot of robotic deployment initially to set up habitats probably under the ground and caves and Mars because the radiation is just so profound. Our biggest threat is the weakness of the human body in space travel. And so that's somewhere where New Zealand can really contribute to the physical training of astronauts. Also, we can contribute in materials technology. They're still designing the suits that are going to be able to withstand that level of radiation. Mm. So we've got some pretty smart people here that can help contribute to that concept. This interview is the last in a month-long series I've been doing on technology to coincide with Tech Week. And over that time, we've spoken with Professor Rob Lindemann about virtual reality, Stella Ward about healthcare in the future, David Carter about technology in Canterbury, and today's episode with Miranda about the colonization of Mars and the promotion of STEM for the next generation. In the next episode, we're going to kickstart again the interviewing of entrepreneurs, and particularly those who have some sort of social enterprise dimension. First up is going to be Michael Mayle, who founded Cookie Time, which is a Kiwi icon, but he's also involved in many other enterprises. And so we have a really fascinating conversation about all the different things he's involved in. And before I air that interview with Michael, I'm going to be throwing in a bonus episode, so be watching for that in the next couple days. If you don't want to miss out on that and other upcoming episodes, then hit subscribe. And consider telling others about this show if you enjoy the content. Now let's get straight into the interview with Miranda. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Miranda Satterthwaite, who's the STEM coordinator at ARA Institute. Um, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here. Um, we're going to have a really interesting conversation because there's many ways that we could go, um, given your involvement um, with NASA, as well as STEM, as well as young people. Um, but uh, So I'm not actually sure which topic we're going to focus on, which is kind of fun. Well, I guess we could start from the beginning in um, my life that led me into this. I, I grew up in the mountains. And my father was a director, one of the directors for a ski area that was developing. So we kind of grew up in the cold, fixing water pipes and in a pretty remote environment. And I guess that led me into sciences. Mm. I studied, first of all, sciences at Otago University and then came back and studied international business law here at Canterbury and ICT. Okay. And that childhood, which which resort or which so place that was, was Porter it? Heights Ski oh, okay. area, yeah. yeah. And um, we had a great group of parents that were pioneering a new ski area with a group of uh, young children. So I got the idea of what you needed to survive in remote environments. Went through ski racing in Canterbury, and then coaching all around the world in Japan and Europe. So mm. I finished up being an ISIA fully certified ski coach. And I guess all the skills in that have influenced my direction into extreme environments mm. with Antarctica and with space. 
Yeah, for sure. So you were skiing right from when you can remember? Huh? Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, from when I can remember. Mm. So I thought everybody grew up on mountains and in extremes. And at high school, I kind of realized that we were different, that we were one of the only ski families. Um, and I guess that high resistance to cold and extreme situations have given me some of the skills I, I needed for dealing yeah. with space. Yeah. And what had led your father to have that? Specialty. I guess he's just a pioneer. I mean, New Zealanders are into um, alpine sports and also into creating things that have never been created before. Mm. Building those huts for the first time up on the mountain. It's really similar to what we do on our Mission to Mars program. Mm. Yeah. And so you were actually living on the mountain itself? Yeah, we were there every weekend. Weren't we um, Yeah, every weekend in the winter. And also we'd stay there over the holidays in the wintertime and even go up there in summertime to build huts Mm-hmm. and to be part of the alpine environment. Yeah, well, that's great. And what are some of your other memories of growing up and being in that outdoors? Uh, uh, dealing with the plants and going for hikes, you know, for two-day hikes, running down shingle screes and uh, just the being in a really remote place where it was really dry and really cold and the friendships and the, the way we had to survive. It was pretty special. It was very New Zealand. And when I fly in from overseas, I notice those beautiful mountains and I understand what makes us unique and what makes our education system unique. Mm. So what are some of the key things you think that... We're, we're really good innovators. We're really good at creating something with massive constraints because of how far we are away from the rest of the world. I think that innovation is maximum when you've got constraints and I guess that's what I learned when I was involved in developing Porter Heights. And that's what we use when we try to develop habitats for Mars or extreme environments like Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And so going through through your high school years, you were racing and skiing. Yeah, and every weekend we were ski racing. And then in between that, I, was, I loved sciences. So I took all the sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, uh, did a lot of outdoor education and languages. So German, Japanese, I speak five languages, mm. Korean. Yeah, it was it was a really great education, and it was really rigorous. So, I I think New Zealand has a strong education system as I've been through it, and it's it's taken me a long way. Mm. Oh, that's great. What drew you to the languages side of things? Was that the alpine ski coaches that we had came from all over the world? I see. So we knew from really a young age that we would need to be multilingual. So I started learning German when I was about five from a lady down the road, and then picked up French, and then picked up Japanese, and then finally Korean. Mm-hmm. which has been useful for recent work I've done with Korea. So. Okay, yeah. Well, that's great. And so um, take us through in university and what you were studying, and did you know what you wanted to do in terms of a career? Yeah, I started off going to Knox College, and I studied the human sciences, mm-hmm. so anatomy, physiology, biochemistry. And it wasn't really my leaning to go in through to medicine because I was very keen to finish off that first degree and get overseas and ski mm. and coach. So I finished my first degree my BSc when I was 20 a year ahead of everybody else and got straight on the airplane and went to Austria and in Austria I did all my ski certifications for coaching Mm. Uh, so it was you know it was steeped in deep sciences but pretty keen to get out there and use that that physical degree as fast as I could Mm. and get some overseas experience right and how long were you there in Austria so I worked in Austria and then I came back and worked for nzski.com Coronet Peak and Remarkable, so also worked at Mount Hutt, all in, in sports coaching and um, instructing. And then got a contract for Interalpin, a company in Japan, and they had a massive sports academy, had ski areas, 
including one of them which was going to run the World Championships. So I was involved in the Shizugueshi World Championships, dealing with all the international teams there. Mm. And um, then with the Tokyo Ski Association, taking teams from here to, no, from Japan to New Zealand and then from Japan to the United States. Mm-hmm. So I was involved in that work of Japanese coaching for probably three and a half years. Right. I also came back for one of the seasons and coached the Canterbury Ski Association team. So that was really fantastic. Mm. Oh, that's great. And in terms of Japan, what was your, what did you enjoy about living there? I, I have to say I lived in Japan for five years, so I always ask this question if somebody has a Japan connection because I'm curious. <laughs> oh, I love the technology, fantastic, which led me into ICT and, and programming and all the sense of technology and into robotics eventually. Mm-hmm. But I also love their concise use of everything, ranging from time to dimensions to their ability to um, make a lot of things from very limited resources, love mm. the food. Right, yeah, you can't go past the food, yeah, can great you? Great snow for a deep powder skiing. Yeah, which part were you in, in Hokkaido? Or in, so I was based in Shizukuishi, uh, so Iwate Prefecture. Mm-hmm. It was very sweet memories, but quite sad recently because uh, it was a lot of friends came from Sendai, so uh-huh. some of them I couldn't find when I tried to go back to Japan last time. Right. So yeah, it, the, those memories are great from skiing t- days, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And what years are we talking about? So that's probably, uh, I left Japan in about 1996. Mm -hmm. So they were, yeah, early years of um, skiing and international travel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you came back to New Zealand? So um, then I finished a master's in international business law and also some, and included in that, um, papers in ICT and and a lot of political science as well. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Still coaching at that time, back here at Mount Hutt. Right. Oh, that's good. And what is it that you love about, I guess, skiing or being out on a mountain? Um, I think that the ability to um, move quickly and make some decisions that are pretty much life or death is something that I really enjoy. And I think that's something that I thought about often when we were in the simulators at space camp, um, particularly when we were locked in to the aircraft that was going to Mars. It was tough, it was confined, it was cold, and we had to go at 3G really fast as we launched. And I think that the fact that I love going fast in cold places has helped me with the space mm. activities that I do. Mm. It was a good preparation. Yeah, though. absolutely fantastic preparation. How to how to manage risks at high speed and, and avoid things, I think. Yeah. Well, the freedom. Good. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So when you came back to New Zealand um, and then you did the study yeah. and then what so happened? So I guess I was in, in my second year of my master's and I got, um, I kind of looked at going to teacher's college and pretty quickly after I started that I, I got asked to uh, to work for Christchurch Boys High who were developing an alpine ski team. Mm. They had they had alpine skiers, they yet had, yet, were yet to have ice hockey, snowboarding, park, all the other activities I'd seen in the Nagano Olympics. Mm-hmm. So I, I moved into secondary education because I could keep coaching, but at the same time I could use some of the science and uh, I guess outdoor education qualifications I had. Mm-hmm. Oh, and cool. so I, I worked at Christchurch Boys for about 13 years and had the first robotics laboratory in New Zealand that was dedicated to digital technology oh. by the time I left that place. Right. Yeah. So you started with one sort of hat, but sounds like it yeah moved move from coaching and in, into education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and do you want to just unpack that a little bit more? What what did that involve? That um, the robotics. Okay, so I 
moved into robotics because I found that some students did better with project-based learning and they did better with a problem that they had to solve for a reason to put together work. So with VEX Robotics was the first big platform I got involved with. That's They set a new challenge every year and that challenge is supported by NASA. It's a program that's designed to get students to create robots for a remote environment. So I started getting involved with VEX and we set up a VEX Robotics team and then started a course in digital technologies as the standards started coming through and, and dealing with a range of robots from uh, basically humanoid robotics right through to animals, through to sensor systems, Arduino, um, you know, a little bit of pickaxe and we entered a lot of different competitions. Mm. And was that, you mentioned NASA there, was that sort of your first introduction to some yeah, of the things so, they were doing? So or? the first introduction to some of the NASA work was through robotics, through VEX Robotics mm. and not just that, but I was sent to the United States to do professional development in to Palo Alto, which is in California, and my sister lives in California. So I got familiar with the NASA uh, personnel over there, mm-hmm. and it was pretty seamless to move from the robotics aspect through to the rest of the aerospace. Mm-hmm. As I was also teaching physics, you see, in aerospace and projectile motion and, mm. and mechanics is a big part of the physics curriculum. Mm. So just bring us up to what you're doing now and yeah. what your role involves. So currently I'm the STEM coordinator at our Institute of Canterbury and I started in that role about four and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. And in that role, the primary objective is to increase the number of engineers and scientists in New Zealand so that we can develop into an economy that's, that's strong and, and a place where, where large scientific operations can occur. Mm-hmm. So I started the Mission to Mars project about three and a half years ago from a grant that I had got from MB. <laughs> and the portfolio includes five sections, really. Uh, the first mission to Mars part is about designing and building habitats to survive on Mars and all the, I guess you'd call power engineering and microbiology and astrobiology that's required to terraform Mars. <laughs> that's for years nine and ten. The next program that fits that, which really is from NASA Armstrong, is about fixed-wing aircraft, and that's about designing and building fixed-wing planes, actually smaller aircraft, parachutes, and all the systems that are required for even aerodynamic creation of energy. And then the other programs that are relevant are the mission to Antarctica, which is designing and building habitats for Antarctica, and that's including hydroponics, aquaponics. Pretty important because a lot of NASA uh, systems are tested out in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Then the other program uh, that relates to that is the Antarctic Ecobots, and I've run Mars Ecobots as well. So both of those are about robots, designing and building robots to navigate a remote environment Mm -hmm. and particularly deal with the time delay and to replace humans in a lot of activities of sampling and collection. Mm -hmm. And the final program that relates to it is about rocketry, so that's designing and building rockets, and they have to be launched to a certain altitude, so... It's an iterative process where students come up with a better solution each time mm-hmm. to reach the goal yep. and measure that. Oh, that's good. And is space something that you'd been fascinated by before, or is it something that's it, kind of, you know, you've learned a lot about it, obviously? Absolutely. We have a house at Lake Tikapo, which has the most incredible starry skies. Right. And, you know, being there since I was young, that's where we did a lot of our ski racing, I always noticed the stars. I was always interested in it. Mm. When I was at Christchurch Boys, I taught physics, scholarship physics, and astronomy was a section of what we taught. So I have always been interested in astronomy. Mm-hmm. There's a great observatory at Lake Tikapo, which you can go up and see the stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
so that does fit in with that um, interest from, from childhood as well. Yeah. And the, the Mars aspect of what you're doing, um, is that something that NASA does in other parts of the world as well? Or is this a something that's unique here? Or Right. So when I was in the United States recently, I went to four NASA bases to see what they were delivering in outreach. Mm-hmm. So the first one was Marshall Space Flight Center, mm-hmm. and that's where they design the rockets. It's, it's got an arsenal for rocketry really close by. They had a Mars habitat um, set up and, and system as part of the outreach. Also Kennedy Space Center, we went there to watch rockets launch, and they also have a Mars set up for outreach and for, for more for public to try. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a great simulator. Uh, and then the other two bases I went to, NASA Armstrong, they're more into fixed-wing aircraft, but their aircraft, NASA Sophia, flies up and it looks for chemical and biological footprints using a lot of their infrared telemetry or telescopes. So they are also they also have an eye on Mars. And then the last base I went to, which is predominantly where the Mars missions planned and where the, a lot of the astrobiology occurs, that's called NASA Ames Research Center, mm-hmm. and that's also in California. So mm-hmm. there are, I guess, Marshall and Kennedy have got the public outreach areas for right. the Mars section, but the actual measurement of what's happening in astronomy related to Mars happens out of um, the aircraft that come from Armstrong, and then information goes back to Houston for, for a lot of that, and then astrobiology really is NASA Ames. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are outreach programs all over the United States based from NASA material. We're the only one really in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's such a visual thing, isn't it? The idea of going to Mars and the red planet and, and things. I'd love to Absolutely. unpack that. I'd love to unpack it a little bit more and just talk a, a little bit about what Mars is like. Um, can you give us some information? Okay, we know what Mars is like from the information that's sent from satellites like MAVEN that are mm-hmm. circulating doing orbiting Mars, mm-hmm. and then also closer to Earth, we can see from the NASA Sophia aircraft mm-hmm. using infrared cameras what chemicals or what sort of biological footprint there is on Mars. So it is, we're lucky we're in a time where uh, sensor technology and telescopes and the whole digital capacity behind de- analysing that data gives us insight into what's actually occurring. Uh, from that data, we can see that there has been life and there still are some chemicals there that would enable life, particularly if we were to melt the poles and increase the water supply there. So mm. it is definitely a high potential place for humans to go and live. Mm. So, Because it's been a subject of science fiction movies and books for decades, hasn't it? Um, Absolutely. And it's yeah. really interesting at the moment transitioning people from the science fiction model of what Mars is to actually dealing with the reality. Mm. So we would have to go to Mars for three major reasons. First of all, if there's an asteroid collision, and they're looking out for that the whole time. Secondly, if there is a large war or a massive pandemic from which we have to escape. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, just simply if you extrapolate over time, we are outgrowing the resources of our planet. So those reasons alone make it quite an important mission for for NASA and for other organisations and people like Elon Musk and SpaceX that are working alongside alongside to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it, it, having been to NASA and seen some of their facilities and things, how does it rank in the priorities? I guess from your perspective, the the mission to Mars. Absolutely. Well, it's really important for New Zealand. We're not too far away from the space industry. In fact, the space station orbits the Earth every ninety minutes and is often orbited over us. 
We have just entered the space industry as a nation with a lot of legislative changes at the end of last year and Rocket Lab being able to launch across into this, into areas where we can get great data from satellites and send up CubeSats. Mm. So we're really unique in New Zealand because we're surrounded by water. We've also got very uncluttered skies. Mm. So we can launch at a time that suits the consumer or whoever's paying Rocket Lab to launch. Mm. That gives us an, a niche market for being able to contribute to the space industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Re- recently, there have been a lot of meetings down here with the European Space Agency and German Space Agency and... I guess the key thing that we want to do is be able to contribute to their international network. They're flying over us all the time with satellites, so we are actually part of that industry. We just need to find our place in it. Mm-hmm. And and what do you think that place will be? Like, if we can project 10 years from now, what would your ideal scenario be? So at the moment, I'm one of the leads in a project called Space Space, and we are determining what that ecosystem is going to look like. I believe we have specialist areas that we can contribute to in superfoods, mm-hmm. uh, getting food up to the space station, and analysis of the data that comes down to the telescopes or also to the substations that we deal with here. I think we're going to be important logistical support for any missions that come out of New Zealand, starting with Rocket Lab. Mm-hmm. And we've got an incredible number of coders, programmers and designers here that can contribute to the industry as well. We're a fairly important conduit or location on the way to logistics to Antarctica, and they're still improving the communications over Antarctica at present. So over the next 10 years, that'll be one of the major goals is to use rockets to launch up satellites to get a better database over Antarctica. Mm. Yeah, one of the uh, two weeks ago, I interviewed Peter Beggs from mm. Antarctica, New Zealand, and we were talking about space in Antarctica, and as you'd said, sort of the similarities that you can test things in Antarctica Absolutely. That, that you need to check, you know, how's it going to work? in this extreme environment. Absolutely. So Antarctica is one of the coldest and driest places on Earth, mm. and it's like Mars. It's When you first arrive on Mars, there, there is going to be no one there to greet you, and it's going to be extremely cold. Gravity is really only 3.1. It's pretty dusty. It's, it's going to be like the dry valleys of Antarctica, and we can't really afford for things to fail because of the time lag between Mars and Earth. There's no one really there to help you. So the best thing to do is to test out equipment in those dry valleys in Antarctica, mm-hmm. ranging from sensor equipment through to how we do our hydroponics remotely and aquaponics, also human training. So we've got a great position here to develop some training programs for astronauts or for people that are heading to Mars because we can simulate those remote environments really, mm-hmm. really easy, not just in Antarctica but down in places like Tikapo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And just thinking even longer term, you know, 30 years from now, 40 years from now or something, what do you think the shape of it might look in terms of how far we've been able to get with colonizing Mars, if that's the aim? Well, I guess the, one of the plans is to get a, an orbiting station around the moon and then slingshot from the moon out around to Mars. And depending on how well that first deployment goes... Uh, we will be able to increase the volume of traffic that happens between Earth and Mars. There's going to be have to be a lot of robotic deployment initially to set up habitats probably under the ground and caves in Mars because the radiation is just so profound. Our biggest threat is the weakness of the human body in space travel. And so that's somewhere where New Zealand can really contribute to the physical training of astronauts. Also, we can contribute 
and materials technology, they're still designing the suits that are going to be able to withstand that level of radiation. Mm. So we've got some pretty smart people here that can help contribute to that concept. Mm. So what happens in 40 years' time is going to depend a lot on whether we crack the technologies for, for fastest space travel, ionic-based. Um, we, we want to be able to improve the suits going there just to pr- protect humans and whether we can actually uh, overcome the biological hazards of living there mm. is probably going to determine the rate at which humans occupy Mars. Mm. It's going to be much easier for robots to do it, and you know, robotic mining is probably on the agenda for that. Mm. So you mentioned ionic-based travel. Yeah. Can you unpack that? They're still I... looking into that. Okay. And, but Elon Musk is... Is he's trying out a range of different things. It's going to cost a lot of money to get that sort of technology developed, and so. Mm. Um, what is it? What is it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's my question. What is it? Uh, yeah. Because oh, I'm right. obviously sci-fi. I think yeah. we've all seen Star Trek and just, warp drives, and you know, like, are we talking about this type of out there just, technology, just, or is it? Well, what I it, guess you're going to think about energy sources coming from solar, and then right. displacing ions to move things rapidly. Um, and also thermonuclear energy as well. And I guess that's because we can't use any a great deal of combustion out in space where you've got a vacuum and you've got no oxygen. Mm. So those technologies are still really a big focus for development at the moment to speed things up, mm. um, to get things that are sustainable in terms of battery storage, energy supply, and then creating enough thrust to get to get us over there. So that is still being solved currently. But there is, an, there is a rocket that's... that's got the plans for going to Mars, it's a space launch system, and it's big enough to carry a number of elephants, it's got such a strong um, thrust to get it into outer orbit. That's really where the focus of research is going on at the moment. Mm. And you mentioned maybe having a space station circling uh, circling the moon, right? Yeah, absolutely, and so that would enable people to be able to refuel and acclimatise and also to test out systems for zero gravity or for lower gravity systems, mm-hmm. whether biological substances change at zero gravity or 3.1 and how we would best survive in that environment. So mm. a lot of testing has to occur before they do the mission from outside the moon's orbit through to Mars. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of the time it would take to get to Mars? Oh, there's a range, <laughs> of, there's a range of different views on that, and it depends. it really depends on where the planets are lined up in the right. in the window of information. They have a window of time for launching to get us to have the planets exactly aligned or closely aligned for us to get to Mars Right. Yeah, in a period of time. And also on the different energy systems that are required to transport us there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's, that's great. Yeah, because you've just come back from the States, right? Mm. And I think you took some some young That's people right. to so I took experience. 30, totally. yeah. 36 students I took to space camp and Marshall Flight Center, Space Flight Center. And so they did a range of activities ranging from astronaut training in pools to a lot of simulation, rocket simulation, um, G-force. Then they had to actually do missions. They were put in specific roles and they had to do Mars mission. They had to do a moon landing. They had to do a range of different difficulty difficult situations to try to solve the problems and to fix the aircraft that they were on or uh, deal with medical issues. They also studied about Russian history and the history of space. They studied a number of things to do with, um, I guess, astronomy, but also more the mechanics of flight and 
aircraft. Mm-hmm. They were key areas as well. Mm. And what was the reaction from the students like oh, coming it was back? Great. Was it? It was great. Uh, they really loved doing things like building rockets and launching them. Some of the simulations were probably more difficult than some of them wanted to deal with, mm. and we expected that. And the isolation and some of the challenging activities, you know, th- threw some students out of um, interest, but. A lot of them really loved it, mm. and a lot of them have come back already. We've seen them at our expo recently, the Careers Expo, and have asked about pathways into science and engineering. Mm. Great. So that's really um, fulfilling that stem. Yeah, absolutely. They're coming up and asking about you know, how do I do sciences and what, what degree should I take to go this way? Do I do a Bachelor of Applied Science or do I do a Bachelor of Engineering Technology? Mm. They're really keen and interesting and, and wanting to enter the space industry. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, I printed out, you, you gave me a bunch of material before we met, and one of the things was this picture, this image, which is basically f- looking down on New Zealand from space, isn't it? What do you see? What do you think when you see that sort of image? Or? I see New Zealanders having a really uncrowded sky and really it being a clean environment, also surrounded by water, so it's easy for us to launch rockets from New Zealand, not have to worry about the flight path of other aircraft, mm. and not having to worry about where the rockets will fall into the sea. I also see the space station looking down at New Zealand and that we're part of that space industry. Mm. Many countries are involved in the space station and NASA wants more partners, I think. We're sitting there ready to help out, to either help with their data or help with superfoods or just be part of an industry that's right next to us in the sky. Mm. Yeah, it's an amazing image, really, because you don't get that perspective of the country unless you go that high <laughs> it also makes you realize how fragile earth is there's only a really thin layer yeah of of air that we have to breathe and we're we're kind of abusing it at the moment with carbon mm. with carbon fuels and i think when you look at this picture you see how we're all connected and and from the space station it's, it's time to give earth a chance and protect the environment a bit more mm. yeah that's good We'll move on from Mars in a moment, but um, I printed out something else, which was the astronaut code of conduct. And I'm just really curious how this was developed. And um, I love some of the things that are written here. Um, I don't know if you'd like to expand on anything um, that's there or choose some of your favorites. There was one that stuck out to me, but um, where does this come from? So when we have a group of students that do our mission to Mars, they don't always know each other and they come from a range of different schools and and different environments. So to put them together under pressure on the mission to Mars, we need to make sure that they know what we expect of them as a team player. So Mm. we have an astronaut code of conduct that they sign right at the beginning of the mission to Mars. And it points to the fact that, you know, they've got to accomplish things as a team, not individually, and that it's going to be hard work so that they need to listen to other people's views as well as take care of all the things that they have, Mm. have stewardship for all the materials and, and the land around them Mm. yeah i just love because i think a lot of these things would be very applicable to any organization Um, so you've got competence teamwork integrity relationships personal behavior stewardship lifelong commitment you know there's a really good core principles there i think yeah absolutely and i think that with today's learning and 21st century jobs it's these soft skills that are really going to get people to reach ultimate goals and innovation in new zealand so although it's really important to have physics and maths and some pretty good coding to, to be able to cope with being in the space industry, 
it's these softer skills that will enable people to survive extremes, things that can go wrong and to have each other's back and to make sure that they lead in a careful way rather than cutting people out and mm. are responsible for their own behaviour. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, so you get them to sign that. They're committed to it. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I can imagine that it would then actually be a flow on to other parts of their life. You absolutely. Know, and when we watched skills. the students graduate on space camp at the end of the week, it was a pretty emotional time. We saw what incredible things they went through from underwater to extreme heights to food they'd never eaten before to being really remote and having to survive situations. And it, once they do graduate from space camp, just like when they graduate from a mission to Mars, they're, they're graduates from that forever. So that lifelong commitment to these principles of, of astronaut code of conduct are mm. great for them. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, I really like it. I'm going to take it home, show it to my kids. <laughs> That's great. Um, let's move on to a slightly, it's a similar topic, but slightly different, just with Space Base. Can you explain a little bit about that? So Space Base is a project which is really about identifying capacity in the community of companies that we have that are emerging for the space industry. So this year's Space Challenge was really an idea that would encourage coders and programmers and potentially roboticists to get out and and start to solve a problem. The main problem that we've given them is to design and build a robot or a system that can navigate across the treacherous Antarctic terrain and it's similar to what we do in an Antarctic robots program at our Institute of Canterbury we get them to design and build robots for Antarctica this this kind of system that we're looking at in the space-based project may may actually be the GPS system or it might actually be the system that they're using relying on other data and and, tele, and telecommunication data to navigate across crevasses and across treacherous environment but we haven't judged it yet, so I don't want to give too many specific solutions. Mm. All I can say is the problem is Antarctica, and we're simulating that that problem of navigating across Mars mm. with this problem. Yeah, that's great. And it's it's wonderful that there's people like Emily and Pat Dostrom, who's now Absolutely. in New Zealand and brings that wealth of experience as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's what I also see when I look at that picture of the space station going over New Zealand, mm. is that people know about New Zealand now, and they know we're here and we we can support them and it's great we've got people like Emmeline coming mm. from as far away to see New Zealand as an opportunity to grow a new industry yeah. and support us with their knowledge and the international network. Yeah, yeah. Um, Emmeline's been on this podcast so in about the 15th one in I interviewed her about her life in the Philippines and all of her global travels before she ended up here. Oh, so that's great. Yeah, it's a really good episode if people want to look back and hear about her story as well. Yeah. So um, maybe just tell us a little bit about STEM and um, how, how do you get young people excited about these topic areas and wanting to know more and feeling like they could also study, you know, technology and engineering and science and maths? So STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics. In some countries it's called STEAM. It has an A in it, okay. which refers to really the artistic approach that you can take to it Mm. we include that approach in stem we use the word stem it's the same as united states and nasa uses the word stem just because we're looking at the body of knowledge but we use an iterative design approach to create new things that give the students confidence and then they realize they need to keep the subject going Mm. like for example in the mission to mars they're given a limited amount of resource and an extreme problem 
to solve. So they've given a box of materials plus the ability to 3D print other materials up to a certain payload to create a habitat for Mars. You see, it's $50,000 a kg to get anything off Earth. So the concept is that they have to 3D print up while they're there on Mars or if they're on a, on a space station. And so through setting you know, a certain number of constraints, we get them to innovate. So in the STEAM projects that we run at our Institute of Canterbury, or STEM programs, we do use that, that iterative design process so that students discover that they can actually do something. They can either, they might, for example, build a bridge, or they might build a tower, or they mm-hmm. might build a rocket. And then from that, they understand the mathematics, and therefore they have something that they can see works, and they, they can take it home with them. And we find a lot of the students after that choose to stay in mathematics and sciences because they suddenly realise why they need that. There's a, in some of our courses, they build digital devices. In other courses, they deal with animals or, or plant materials or different, um, different types of analysis and chemistry. Mm. We have chemistry competitions. We run a big program called eVelocity, which is about electric vehicle design and build, and that's quite similar to the NASA robot competition that I saw about four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have involvement with the VEX Robotics program. We use uh, robotics in our IT girls program. That's to get girls to take up pathways into ICT and programming. And yeah, we have a potential to do other programs we're looking at next year to do with marine life mm-hmm. and aquatic environments. Mm. Yeah, so quite a range of things. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's all about inspiring students. Mm. So they may not be inspired in class or see why they need to do what they're doing, but we involved in industry links. So we have industry personnel come in and explain about the jobs involved that link to these STEM courses. Mm. And we have student ambassadors that are training to, to do these jobs for industry. So the students suddenly have the aha uh-huh moment where they see, wow, this relates to the space industry or wow, this relates to actually energy industry. I want to take a job in that. Mm. Or they might just get inspired to do something with animals and do primary industry mm-hmm. from the courses that we're doing. Yeah. We have our tutors that get in front of them as well, so they get to see what the real learning is like at our Institute of Canterbury, small class size, um, like nice caring tutors, and, and that they will get some really good learning in that environment. Mm. It seems like there's sort of two things I'm hearing. The first one is giving people practical reality. You Absolutely. Know, this is where you take the um, the mathematical formulas or whatever, and here's how we actually use it Absolutely. in a real-life situation. And the second thing is modeling people, real people, who are doing this Absolutely. as their careers. You know that, and, and maybe particularly for young women, that they could see people who've, who've gone and become a scientist and and have those role models. This is right. One of the programs we're running next week is called Shadow Tech, and we're taking students out to industry. They're going out to maybe 12 different companies Mm. with mentors that have come in to work with the students in those companies. So the the key thing we have is these industry links with our Institute of Canterbury Mm. so that students get on site really early in their training and then they, because of that, they build the relationships and the credibility to get a really good job. Mm. And that's what we're quite keen to do with all of the, the aerospace industry as well, as it grows from being just Pratt & Whitney and Air New Zealand out to other companies, Rocket Lab, that our students get there, get involved early, get on site and help develop those industries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, one of the things I often ask people is about purpose and what they're doing and, and do they feel like they're, I guess, fulfilling their purpose in what they're doing in their role? I think I know the answer for you, but mm. um, do you would you be able to comment on that? And yeah, absolutely. I, I love my job, and I really do feel like I'm fulfilling the purpose of helping get New Zealand on track economically. It's it's 
quite a regional role. What I'm doing is benefiting the region in a number of areas of the economy mm. long term, and that data is starting to come through. I think our Institute of Canterbury uh, is lucky that they've had the opportunity to develop this, and I think the whole region is benefiting from it. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And if you could go back to your to your high school self, like you're out skiing, um, is there anything that you've learned along the way that you wish that you'd known, you know, looking back um, on what you've been able to do and, and been involved in? Yeah, it's a really interesting path, I think, that I took. In a lot of ways, I had to wait for technology to catch up with me, and I wouldn't have been into this role until, I mean, we've only just become a space nation in the past year, so... Mm. I wouldn't have got into this role any sooner. Um, looking back, I actually wish I'd kept mathematics going longer. I did really well in mathematics, but I pretty much enjoyed the languages most. Mm-hmm. And I think looking back, that's probably something that would have been beneficial for me. Probably instead of just doing a pure science degree, I'd love to have done an engineering degree. And I just don't think engineering pathways were shown that well to women back then. Mm-hmm. So I'm really keen on making sure that if girls want to design and build things, that they can get into engineering early and, and start that pathway, starting off by taking excellent mathematics all the way through, right through to calculus, as well as physics. And that would lead up them into any kind of engineering, whether it's a Bachelor of Engineering Technology or a Bachelor of Engineering mm-hmm. in um, Civil, Mechanical or Electrical. Yeah. No, I just think we need to have confidence that we're part of a global economy and that, and that inc- includes global engineering. And this m- move to increase the space industry is going to happen we want to get onto it early and be part of it early not just watch it from the side Mm. and i think that that's going to be a point of strength is that we're the closest place to antarctica that where english is spoken where we have a first world medical system and we've got some great institutions that we should be leading this uh, and grabbing the opportunity to develop our economy and and something that's unique for us Mm. during tech week we're running a number of activities so Shadow Tech for Girls mm. is the opportunity for students to go out into tech companies, and that's going to be in engineering companies as well. So that's going to be a great opportunity for high school students. Mm. We're running some teacher professional development, but the key activity that is occurring is the Extreme Environments Day, and in that I'm on a panel to talk about extreme environments from Antarctica to Mars, and also we're judging the space-based project. So we'll be able to see which company has come up with the best solution for Antarctica. Mm and ultimately for space. So I've got some fantastic friends arriving that have flown with on NASA Sophia. They're going to be coming to part of this week and they're going to speak as well. Mm. So I'm looking forward to that. And then there's the high-tech event at the end of the week, which will be an awards and a, a celebration event for all of us. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, I, I mentioned I interviewed Peter Beggs for you know leading up to tech week but i also interviewed rob lindeman who's all about virtual reality Mm -hmm. and one of the things he's about is how could we use virtual reality in antarctica for this sort of space connection absolutely we had an augmented reality system set up last week for our institute of canterbury at the careers expo Mm -hmm. and the students just loved it they Mm -hmm. were in there um dealing with astronauts and trying to figure out their place in on mars and next to the spaceship so I think that in a lot of ways, a lot of the virtual training we can do and, and I guess the, a lot of systems we could set up around that would be useful for training for people for other planets. Mm. But the most important thing we can get out of any of this space training is to be more careful with our life on Earth. There are hundreds of different inventions that have occurred because of support of the International Space Station and because of money that's been put in, into space travel so that it's, it's not something that is at, at all a waste 
whatever we develop for Mars or for Antarctica can also be beneficial for Earth and for under the seas. Mm, yeah, that's great. And do you think one day you'll get a chance to go up and... It's interesting. I've been up in NASA Sophia before. I've okay. also um, been with NASA Earth, which is an um, aircraft that looks downwards and measures the, I guess, the gaseous levels of different substances as it goes around the Earth. So these are just in the outer stratosphere. Um, to go up into space, I've been on a couple of simulations, and you've got, you know, it's risky. It's highly risky physically to do that. Um, I was probably more keen a year ago than I am now to, to do that and to do the Mars trip. I think the simulators are so real that it's it can knock you about a little bit. So mm. I'm very realistic about the actual mission to Mars, and I'm most involved in the training and the technologies that can get us there. Right. But you never know the next generation, right? Absolutely, the next generation. <laughs> One of these people. We train them up really young, keep them underwater and keep them really fit, and, and that becomes their default. Then they'll be able to cope with it very well. Mm, yeah. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, Miranda, thank you so much for coming in today and, and speaking. It was really fascinating to hear about your childhood and, you know, learning to ski as a very young child and how that extreme environment has sort of, you know, played out through your life as a ski instructor, but now also working with these Mission to Mars and NASA and uh, and what the future holds for space. That's so. great. And we, I guess they arrive in a week's time, so we're looking forward to seeing them and um, working together for the next mission they have on Sophia. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Well, I hope you learned something from that conversation with Miranda. It certainly struck me the difficulties it will take to go to Mars, but also really encouraging to hear how New Zealand can play an active part in that. And it's great to hear about space space as well. If you want to hear an earlier episode, then I interviewed Emmeline Pat Dostrom on the topic of space as well. So you might want to check that earlier episode out. Now, in next week's episode, we'll be speaking with somebody who's touched the lives of probably every New Zealander because he founded Cookie Time. I have a great conversation with Michael Mayle, and here's an excerpt from our chat. Well, I think, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, what, what you see today with Cookie Time and all its success, um, what you've got to realise is the number of failures that went on behind the scenes. Mm. Some of those failures were instant failures, like pizza time. Um, other failures lasted a year or two, like muffin time. Um, we have had dozens. We've had dozens of failures over the years. We had, Easter cookies was another product, and, and actually Easter cookies is a great uh, is, is a really interesting one because we d- we did that for three years, and we should have kept going with it. Um, because what I've learned now is that sometimes it just takes a bit longer for people to get onto things, mm. and the product was loved by the people that were eating it. Um, and it was a great product, and it was, a, and, and we had nothing else in that Easter market, and we should have persisted with it in hindsight. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, really, it, it just comes back to um, trying, trying, and failing, and and and, and keeping on, um, keeping on going, and, and realizing that success is actually all about failure. And the more you fail, the more you succeed. Well, thanks for joining me today. And if you thought the content was worthwhile, then consider sharing it with a friend. Until next time. Mm-hmm.